The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is my privilege to in, uh, introduce you to Matt Purdy, Reverend Matt Purdy, the senior pastor over at Carlisle Reformed Presbyterian Church. I first met Matt uh, many years ago at a pastors and wives retreat, I think, where I met he and his wife, Kristen, who had gotten up early and gone for a long run. My wife and I had slept in, made us feel a little bit lazy, but uh, Matt is a dear friend. He has three children, Owen, Baxter, and Lucy. Matt is uh, a real pastor's pastor. He has a very gentle heart. He is uh, wise beyond his years. It's been a privilege to recommend various students at Dickinson University when I worked with disciple makers to go to his church and sit under his teaching, as well as recommend various staff that were on disciple makers to, to go to his church and receive counsel from him. He's always been just a faithful and reliable representative to the Lord. So it's with, with great privilege I introduce to you Reverend Matt Purdy. Thank you, Dave. Why don't we open our Bibles together to Psalm 1, to the first Psalm. And while you're turning there, let me say what a joy and a privilege it is for my family and I to be able to worship with you this evening. This is actually our first time at a worship service here at Westminster. So if you are visiting this church for the first time, we're actually in the same boat together. We are both brand new here. And if you want to know more about this church or you have any questions, you're going to have to ask someone other than me. Perhaps you can ask Dave Kiefer, who is uh, helping lead worship this evening, one of the pastors here, or the person who invited you to come, or someone sitting near you afterwards, because I really can't help you. I'm not a member of this church. I don't go here. Uh, Like I said, I'm brand new. But let me be clear that my connection to this church is not new. As those of you who are members of this church know, different pastors from our presbytery, the regional network of churches in our denomination, have been preaching on Sunday evenings here, and our church back in Carlisle is in the same presbytery as yours. So I have been here a few times for presbytery meetings and other meetings. I know your pastors, I know some of your elders, I know a few of your members. Uh, So that's a bit about my connection to you. But like I said, it is my joy and my privilege to be able to worship with you and especially to open up God's word to you this evening from Psalm 1. This particular psalm has been called the introduction to the rest of the psalms and to all the great matters which come after it. It's been called a text upon which the whole of the psalms make up a divine sermon. It's been called a faithful doorkeeper into the Psalter, or changing the image slightly, a magnificent gateway to this extraordinary ancient collection of Hebrew religious verse. It's been said that what a foundation is to a house, the keel to a ship, the heart to an animal, the same is this psalm to the whole book. It is the psalm of psalms. It is a poem. It is a work of art. 
And the artist, of course, is God himself, since all scripture is breathed out by him. So we'll give our attention to it as such together this evening. We're going to look at just the first three verses, but I'd like to read the whole psalm to start. But before we do that, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for giving us this psalm and for how it reminds us, among other things, where true blessedness is found. Not in walking in the counsel of the wicked, but in walking in the way of the righteous, walking in your ways. We want to do that in our daily lives, but Lord, we are sinners, and we need your grace. We need your help. So would you teach us now by your word and spirit so that we might be challenged and encouraged and equipped to walk in your ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1, this is the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We're going to take a closer look together at the first three verses of this psalm, as I said, under three headings. So if you're taking notes here, you can jot these down if you like. First, we're going to look at what we should avoid. That's in verse 1. Second, what we should pursue, verse 2. And third, what we will be like if we avoid what we should avoid and pursue what we should pursue. That's verse 3. So let's start with what we should avoid as the people of God, as those who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. What are we told about that in verse 1? Look again at verse 1. It reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are two things we need to understand in order to grasp what is God saying to us in this particular verse through the psalmist. And the first is the first word there, blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, etc. What does that mean exactly? That's a word we use frequently as Christians, but what does that mean? Well, the word blessed here has the sense of truly happy. Not happy just on the surface, but deeply happy or satisfied, joyful, blessed in that sense. God is telling us here the way to true happiness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Truly happy is that man. And the second thing we need to understand is what it says here about what the blessed man avoids. 
Notice it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You can sense a progression there. The progression of sin that we are called to avoid. First walking in the counsel of the wicked, then proceeding to stand in the way of sinners, and finally ending up sitting in the seat of scoffers. One commentator said, I think very helpful point, we are taught here that in sin there is gradation. Let us flee the first step. Isn't that helpful? Let us flee the first step. In other words, don't even take that first step of sin. Flee that first step because it's a step down a slippery slope of sin that ends in a heap of misery. So we are called to avoid walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. Basically, we are to avoid the ungodly ways of worldly people, doing what they do, valuing what they value, pursuing what they pursue. And instead, we are called to pursue what we see in verse 2, which we'll come to in just a minute. If we avoid ungodliness we will be happy. Now, don't misunderstand me. We may not always feel happy. Remember, Jesus himself said that in the world we would have tribulation. And the Bible is very clear that as Christians we will go through trials and persecution and suffering and all the rest. Perhaps you are right in the middle of that yourself as you come this evening. But the point is this. When we live the way that God intends for us to live, We have a kind of happiness in God, an undercurrent of joy in the Lord that runs beneath all the hardship. And that can't be destroyed by our circumstances because it's not rooted in our circumstances. It's rooted in our God. And so we can truly say that when we live this way by God's grace, when we avoid what we should avoid and we pursue what we should pursue, we will have a happy Life, a truly, deeply happy life, that is, a blessed life. Not because we've earned it, but because this is the way God has graciously set things up. That when we walk in His ways, we experience true blessedness. You see, God defines true blessedness, not the world and not us. Only the God who made us knows what will truly make us happy. Think about it for a moment. Do we really think the world knows better than God what will make us truly happy? Do we really think we know better than God what will make us truly happy? God knows what will make us truly happy and it's not following the world. It's not following our own selfish desires. It's following Him and His ways. I am the light of the world, Jesus said in John 8, 12. Whoever follows me, me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Holiness and happiness go together. I think sometimes we're tempted to think that worldliness and happiness go together. And there's a measure of truth to that if we're honest. 
because there's, there's a kind of happiness that worldliness brings, but it's a temporary happiness, isn't it? Don't you know that from experience? It is a fleeting happiness that brings guilt and shame along with it and temporal consequences, and it leaves us feeling empty and unsatisfied, and most importantly, it dishonors our Lord. When we give in to temptation and we sin afterwards, we don't ever think, do we, man, I'm glad I did that. That really made me truly happy. No, we think, I cannot believe I did it again. I cannot believe I thought yet again that that would make me happy, but now I just feel awful. Lord, have mercy. It's when we say no to sin and yes to God that we experience true joy, true happiness, true blessedness, because holiness and happiness go together, not worldliness and happiness. Children, you may know this already from the kids' catechism, if you've learned it in your home or in Sunday school. Question 21 asks, in what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And the answer is, he made them holy and happy. Holy and happy. Holiness and happiness go together. That is what God says, children. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Think about even the terms we use as we speak about such things. Godly and worldly. Which is better, God or the world? Clearly, God is better than the world. So then, is it better to be godly or worldly? Clearly, godly. So why would we think otherwise? Why would we act otherwise? Well, it's because of the deceitfulness of sin, isn't it? See, we're crazy when we sin. We're spiritually insane when we choose the world over God then we need the powerful grace of Christ to restore our sanity. Christians, I think, should be happy people. In fact, we should be the happiest people on the planet. We know God. We know salvation from our sin through his son. We have God's spirit living in our hearts. We have the Bible. We have the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting to look forward to. Shouldn't we be happy? It is well with our souls, as we sing, even when sorrows like sea billows roll over us. Whatever our lot, God has taught us to say, it is well with my soul. Think about some of those words that we sing, if you're familiar with the hymn, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And therefore it is well with my soul. All may not be well with our bodies. All may not be well with our circumstances but all is well with our souls in terms of all that we have in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we as Christians, we should be happy people. Our lives should be a proof of the truth of verse one. 
that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Truly happy are we when we avoid what God calls us to avoid. Well, how about what we should pursue? Our second point, what we should pursue. Focusing on verse 2 now, if you look at verse 2, it reads, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Two things we'll consider from this verse. Delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. So first, delighting in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord in its entirety now is the whole Bible. The living and active word of God. The words of God written down which are more precious than gold and are the daily bread of our souls. And God says here that we are blessed when our delight is in his law. Not when our delight is in the counsel of the wicked or the way of sinners or the seat of scoffers, but when our delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. God makes this clear many times in the Bible. Romans 7:22, the apostle Paul said, "I delight in the law of God in my inner being." Psalm 112 verse 1, "Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments." Psalm 119 verse 35, "Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it." Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. One more, Psalm 119, again, verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Think about all there is in the Bible to delight in. Right away when you open the Bible, there's a story of God making all things from nothing in six days. There's the account of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt by his powerful hand and his outstretched arm. There's the beautiful poetry and deep spirituality of the Psalms. There's the wisdom and memorability of the Proverbs. Then the words and actions of Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels and the powerful advance of the Gospel in the book of Acts. The wise instruction of the New Testament epistles and the glorious happy ending depicted in the book of Revelation. There are verses on the character of God. There are the promises of God. There's your favorite verses. There's the favorite verses of the person sitting near you and so much more. There's enough in the Bible to delight our hearts for a lifetime and beyond. Put your own Bible reading under the microscope for just a minute. Your own private reading of Scripture in your home. Let me ask you, is it a delight to you? I hope it is, and I'm sure it is to some degree for all of us who are in Christ, but it's good for us to consider this because I think it can spur us to grow. Are we delighting in the law of the Lord when we sit down to read it? Or are we just doing it so we can check the box on the Bible reading plan? George Mueller once wrote, 
According to my judgment, the most important thing to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. I think that's good counsel for our Bible reading. When we read our Bibles... Let us seek to have our souls truly happy in God himself. Let's be asking the Lord to cause our hearts to delight in him through his word that he has given us. Let me ask you this. If verse two was written to describe you personally, how would it read? But... His delight, her delight, is in what? And on what he, she meditates day and night. What do you delight in most? It's not wrong to delight in your spouse if you're married or your children if you have them or a friend or the beauty of a sunset or the taste of a good meal or some other created good. But what is your chief delight, your highest joy? Pray that more and more it would be a delight in the Word of God and in the God of the Word. Well, I think we could say from experience that one of the ways we grow in our delight in the law of God is by meditating on the law of God. So let's think about that for a minute. Back to Psalm 119, verse 97 reads, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or famous verse from Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Day and night, this phrase day and night is just a way of saying all the time. Blessed is the man who loves the word of God and who thinks about it all the time. Not that we never think about anything else. According to the Bible itself, we're supposed to think about a lot of things other than the Bible. But we're supposed to think about those things in a way that is informed by the Bible and infused with the Bible. And we should also think about the Bible itself frequently and with delight. So let's talk for a minute about how to meditate on God's word. I think one simple way is to pick a verse that stood out to you from your Bible reading. Perhaps you read a chapter or a few chapters a day and spend a few minutes thinking about that verse and praying in light of it. Meditation and prayer really go together. Meditation is thinking about the verse and prayer is praying about the verse. And taking that time to think and pray about a verse that stood out to you from your Bible reading, I think is a wonderful opportunity to grow in your knowledge of God's word and to pray about things you might not normally pray about and to commune with God and delight in God through his word. And it helps you to remember 
that verse and take it into the, to your day with you so you can put it into practice with God's help so you can call it to mind in a time of need so that you can share it with others or so you can meditate on it and pray about it again at some other time during the day while you're in the car perhaps or while you're waiting in a line or while you're making dinner whenever if you've taken the time to think and pray about a verse you're more likely to remember it and to be able to benefit from it throughout that day one thing I like to do is I like to review scripture that I've memorized for example I've memorized Psalm 1 which you perhaps have done if you're looking to do some scripture memory Psalm 1 is a great place to start but for me at certain times throughout the day I'll just call up the next verse in my mind and think about it and pray about it for just a minute so I might take some time in the car on the way to work in the, in the morning maybe meditate on verse 1 of the psalm and then on my way home I'll meditate on verse 2 uh, that's a great way for me to prepare, by the way, to re-enter the home and serve my wife and serve my kids, again, with God's help. And while I'm falling asleep at night, I'll meditate on verse 3, that sort of thing. I would commend to you that kind of practice as you review Scripture memory or passages that are meaningful to you. Donald Whitney is an author you may be familiar with. He has some helpful material on how to meditate on the Bible. In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, He mentions 17 different ways to meditate on a passage of Scripture. I'm not going to list all of them, but among them are the following. Emphasize different words in the text as you meditate on it. Rewrite the text in your own words. Ask what question is answered or what problem is solved by the text. I really like this one. Set and discover a minimum number of insights from the text. Ask how the text speaks to your current issue or question, etc. The point is that there are a lot of different ways to meditate on God's Word. And I would encourage you, if you don't already have a habit of meditating on God's Word, to pick one of these ways or some other way and get started. Get started tonight, perhaps, as you're falling asleep in your bed and make it a habit throughout your life to meditate on the law of God day and night. You know, we meditate on what we delight in, which is pretty convicting, isn't it? Because if we're not meditating on God's word very often, what does that say about the measure of our delight in God's word? Surely we all have room to grow in this area. And I believe the more we meditate on God's word, by God's grace, the more we will come to delight in God's word. And the more we delight in God's word, the more we'll meditate on God's word. And round and round and up and up we'll go, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. And how will that change us? Well, let's look at our third point about what we will be like when we avoid what we should avoid and pursue what we should pursue. Look at verse three. Verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, is very similar. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There are three things I think we should notice in verse three of Psalm one about what we will be like. First, we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. I love trees. Perhaps you do as well. I love looking at trees because they're so beautiful, but also because they're such a great picture of who we are as the people of God and who we are becoming by his grace. No two trees exactly alike but all of them with roots in the ground and sturdy trunks and branches growing every which way and beautiful leaves and delicious fruit if it's a fruit tree. That's like who we are, who God is making us to be, firmly planted in the soil of God's word with sturdy trunks of sound doctrine and the various branches of our character and callings growing and leaves and fruit for the blessing of others. And verse three says that we will be like a tree that is planted by streams of water. That is so that it can be nourished and refreshed and strengthened and supplied by that water. And what is the water that nourishes and refreshes and strengthens us? But the living water of the word of God that Christ gives us to drink. When we avoid trying to satisfy our thirst with the muddy water of the world, and we satisfy our thirst instead with the living water of the word, we are nourished and refreshed and strengthened and supplied with the water we need to grow. Secondly, we will bear fruit. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. We will bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit not for ourselves, but for others. Fruit that will bless others for the glory of God. We will bear fruit when our roots are in the soil of God's word through meditating on it day and night and delighting in what we meditate on. And third, and finally, our leaf will not wither even in drought. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Or the language in the Jeremiah passage, it does not fear when heat comes. When heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. We would all agree that it's easier to bear fruit when everything's going well. It's easier to have joy in your heart when life is good. It's easier to be patient with the people you live with when they aren't really doing anything that requires much patience. It's easier to have peace when the seas are calm in your life. But how about in the storm? 
How about when the circumstances of your life are really hard, deeply hard? How about when the people around you are hard to love, when the heat is on, when you're in the year of drought? Well, if you are firmly planted in the Lord, if your roots are in the water of His Word, even then you'll be able to bear fruit. Even then you will not cease to bear fruit for the good of others and the glory of God. That is the promise implicit in Psalm 1. That's what God will do in us. That's what He will enable us to do. So that whether it's bright and sunny, or you're in the middle of a drought, or a storm, you can stand strong in the Lord and bear fruit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray, we ask that you would make us more and more like the blessed man here in Psalm 1. Thank you for Jesus who perfectly fulfilled this psalm for us and for the righteousness, perfect righteousness that we have in him. And thank you also that in him, in his strength and by his grace, we can walk in his footsteps. Help us, Lord, to avoid what we should avoid and pursue what we should pursue. And may we be like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.